welcome to episode 58 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at Juliet Binoche Forever, a season of films starring one of the world's greatest thespians, coming up soon at Acme. We'll be reviewing Certified Copy, the 2010 Abbas Kuristami film in which she stars, as well as sharing the Cultural Capital Film Diary and picking our most anticipated film of 2019. But first, the latest from Italian director Paolo Sarantino, Loro. <sighs> Italian director Paolo Sorrentino teams up with his The Great Beauty star Tony Savillo for Loro, his biopicture of controversial Italian media supremo and politician Silvio Berlusconi. Riccardo Scamaccio plays Sergio Moro, a young wheeler and dealer with outsized ambitions. He openly wants to make it into Berlusconi's orbit. He sets about doing so by assembling a troop of beautiful young things and setting up shop at the next mansion over from Berlusconi's. It takes a long time for Berlusconi to come into focus here, with Sorrentino spending a good half of this film following Moro's dogged hustle. The parties are exhaustingly bacchanalian, the excess is excessive, and you don't know whether to laugh, cry, or scream. Sorrentino also, I would argue, draws many implicit parallels between the corrupt Italian Prime Minister who never quite seems to lose and a certain American president. This is all playing with familiar Sorrentino themes, including his critical uh, love of excess, gaudy excess, and contemporary Italian politics. Andy, what did you make of Lauro? Well, this is a really, really interesting film. Uh, first of all, um, while I was watching it, I was kind of blown away. Like the sheer pace, the colours, the images, the makeup, the way that a lot of people are in shadow. There's like an unsettling nature to a lot of this. There was some phenomenal editing toward the beginning, particularly a scene involving a microwave dinner and snorting some cocaine that was panic attack inducing almost in, in its feverishness. But then upon reflection, you're kind of like, ah, okay, what did we really learn? What was actually there? And it's kind of not quite a matter of style over substance because it's fantastic performances from brilliantly written scenes. But at the same time, I felt there was so much that was absent from this that if he did intend it as a character study of Berlusconi, which according to a disclaimer at the beginning of the film is questionable. Yes, no, no, of course. Because, yeah. you know, whether to give himself a legal out or creative freedom, you know, he says very, very early on right at the beginning that this is not based on facts and any inference to real people um, is supposition, although real events will be mentioned or something along those lines. So that gives him a lot of freedom and he really, really uses that freedom. Um, it reminded me quite a lot of The Wolf of Wall Street in a way, but Berlusconi's an infinitely more interesting character than Jordan Belfort. But there was a similar sort of thing of showing you the excesses and the riches but not really digging that deep. <clears throat> That's so interesting. I was going to mention Wolf of Wall Street because I am not a big fan of this movie and I'm kind of thinking, I mean, this this film, this conversation around it like raises those ideas of like what is the responsibility of someone who's making a film like this about someone who is so over the top and in a position of power or like why as audience members do we go and watch films about people who are like willfully fucking up the lives of people around them kind of thing or people directly and indirectly around them what is entertaining about that and something like Wolf of Wall Street paints this really interesting portrait of someone who knows he's exploiting everyone but does it anyway and then by kind of getting into those character questions really succeeds, whereas Lauro doesn't do that. It kind of just, 
I feel like the, you know, the main character is just this guy who's doing whatever the hell he wants and never thinks about anything. He never thinks about how he gets anywhere and there's no kind of setup of uh, before and after what he does. It's it's all just the action. Yes. Yeah. And so it's less satisfying. Yeah. So it's less satisfying than something like Wolf of Wall Street, which is completely insane and over the top and amazing and crazy. But I think also very clever. Mm, right, yeah. It never struck me as that clever as a film. But I'm can you see what you made of it, Anderson? Um well I think I I mean I don't think this film is clever. That's oh, what I right, mean. Sorry. I mean Wolf of Wall Street is clever. Right. Not this I'm one. I'm disagreeing with you That's, entirely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I may fall somewhere between you both. I would be very curious to know what the original version of this film is like. Right, the three and a half hours. Yeah, or yeah. Lo- no longer, I longer. think. Longer. We're getting uh, it was two films, in fact. Yes, so it in Italy it's <clears throat> it's two films. Here we get this sort of amalgamation one and there's something bizarre about the pacing uh, as taken as a whole and when you're in the middle of these scenes I don't think you really pay much attention to that because there's so much going on it's mm. very classically Sorrentino in this sense of you know more is more is more happening particularly in this I mean there is quite a phenomenal um pool party yes <laughs> which I just found like just visually staggering to watch but then upon reflection, and, and, you know, I could spend, you know, hours in that party watching it on the, <laughs> on the screen. I don't know about in real life. I would like to watch a movie with you at that party. That would be great. Uh, uh, but, um, but, yeah, but then on a reflection, you do wonder why did we spend so long and then, and then other things were glossed over or the pacing's a bit funny. And Berlusconi as a character, he's really... Only in the last third does he come into focus. Yeah. Which is not necessarily, you know, it doesn't have to be throughout the whole film and there's no reason for him not to. But I just found that interesting. But I, I read that in the when there were two films, he only came in like towards the very, very end of the first part yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. I mean, yeah, great. We we see this, you know, bacchanalian excess and, you know, this amoral sort of uh, Italian high society. Is there anything more to the film than that? I think it really draws the, those parallels towards the end. You, uh, Sorrentino gets, you can tell he gets, I mean, I think a bit angry about what he's been depicting and there's a bit of energy in the film beyond just the endless parties with these scenes of the post-earthquakes. Oh, like earthquakes. Yeah. yeah. And just like his depictions of real, what I took to be real people, their sort of responses to that. And you could tell that he seemed to be suggesting a complete failure on behalf of, you know, Bill Lasconi's politics to deal with something like this. And that was when I think the film picked up a certain energy because you could see that he was... He was angrily making a point that hitherto had maybe been subdued in favour of his love for his visual love for yeah parties his, yeah part, those parties <laughs> and cocaine yeah I, it's interesting in that regard yeah I thought that the main thing I felt was absent was seeing anything of his politics I mean we got to see him as a salesman this was the way that he saw himself and the way that he was told yes. by his hence the Trump parallels which I think of. <laughs> Are there? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if they're explicitly there. When I think about this movie, I mean, I it's aesthetically, you know, occasionally great and very, um, you know, indulgent, which can be good in in certain portions. Just when I think about, I mean, the, the question of like the responsibility of a filmmaker mm. is one that is so tenuous and tricky to navigate because responsibility is 
obviously a subjective thing and and who who is one person to say that someone you know should not make another film kind of thing but you know obviously the the Trump thing is there and I don't want to see a movie about Trump being like an asshole who likes cocaine and parties and women because we know how awful a uh, scare quotes politician he is. I mean, it's like the same thing with Berlusconi. Like, does he deserve this? I mean, I don't think the film kind of criticizes his politics enough to justify making this movie. Like there are lots of rich assholes who love parties out there that you could make a movie about. You don't have to kind <laughs> of like liberate Berlusconi from sure. the, all of the awful things he did in yeah, Italy. And it's, and it's interesting that the populace of Italy backs you up on that because not many people have been to see this movie. It's right. been his least successful film oh, so far, which is fascinating given the scale of it. And, um, inter- and the subject matter. Uh, yeah. I think I agree, actually. I think um, – the great beauty, I think the great beauty is a better film of his in, and also because I think it solidifies, its main character basically has a um, existential crisis. He's a party boy, much in a similar vein, similar vein, not the identical. And it's full of the same, I mean, glorious party scenes or whatever. But I think anchoring it in this character who's sort of undergoing something of an existential crisis really, it focuses all of that into um, an interesting and coherent, uh, thesis, I guess, but still, I think there's stuff to that that's interesting about this film. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic film to watch. But then when you analyse it, there's like, oh, what's the oil? <laughs> there was one movie that I was actually reminded of more than Wolf of Wall Street, and that was Goodfellas because Ricardo Scaramucci, who plays Sergi, looks a lot like Ray Liotta. He does. He absolutely. And I don't think that's accidental. And then when they use the music cue, "Jump Into the Fire," the song by Harry Nilsson, which is in this case covered by LCD Sound System, which listeners will probably notice the bassline I'll bring in about now. That's some Herbie Flowers with a killer bass intro that everybody will should recognise. And it does, I think, work really, really well. It's a great intro, but it's got all its energy and it will instantly remind anyone who's seen Goodfellas of a scene toward the end involving helicopters, pasta sauce, cocaine. These sorts of things I don't think are accidental. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What about the comparison, Sorrentino comparisons to Fellini, that he's Fellini's successor, you know, someone who criticises greed and excess... I think that he kind of does those things and maybe intentionally or unintentionally exonerates himself from those um, sins in making his movies because he loves that so much. I don't know. I just feel like he's so over the top, but there's just a lack of depth when it comes to actually having insight into what, you know, these people's actions might mean to everyone else around them or to the world, whereas someone like Fellini does that much more interestingly and thoughtfully and i i think um you've just made me realize why i like i think i i like the ending because it does gesture towards that for for almost the first time in the entire film it gestures to this world of real people Mm. outside of this you know double mansion by the sea landscape and um and you realize oh yeah no what they're doing does actually have consequences and it does it with a direct homage to the opening of Rossellini's Roma Home City Open City as well right with the carrying you know in the very beginning of that film is like lifting a big statue of Jesus up and out of the oh. film and over Rome and out of the city and pushing it to the side so Rossellini can have his way with the spirituality of the, the subjects and then here we get a reverse of that 
Interesting. I thought it was really nice. Um, but back to the music. This is one of the things that I really loved about it. I thought the soundtrack was amazing. It had been a long time since I'd listened to Wamdu Project and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and these sorts of other music from 20, 2006 to 2010. And that was the only way I could date what time frame we were moving through. Cause I mean, it's that's just, great. That's that's very, you know, engaging. Yeah, it is. And they're not obvious choices. There's some really great, like Slow by Kylie Minogue. Great choice. Mm-hmm. Doesn't get played to death on the radio like a lot of other music from around that time. So I thought that was really good. And also, I, I don't know if that was intentional, but there was, I, was no, I had no idea how much time was passing between things because we were never really taken out of, like you were saying, this kind of hermetic world of this double mansion in Sardinia, which is apparently his actual mansion, which Berlusconi gave to them because he thought it would be wonderful for him to be the subject of a film. And then he kind of oh. withdrew his approval <laughs> once he realised after the film production had finished that it wasn't going to be all like super favorable of but it is interesting seeing how kind of embarrassed i think italy is of this whole period of, of their mm. recent history and that perhaps like you were saying hello it's not something people are that keen to revisit in this current political climate too soon too real you know too it real. used to, i mean that that kind of attitude used to be like a lol this could never happen so let's make a <laughs> yes. comedy out of it yeah. whereas now it's just like mm. <laughs> exactly or they'd get their comeuppance yeah right? yeah, yeah yeah there was a lot of excess and not much yeah, yeah or they yeah, go through that yeah learn that like oh maybe that's not the way you should speak to people <laughs> but it's not it's not, it's not the way of like Cecil B. DeMille movies where there'll be these sorts of moral instructions but there'll be an awful lot of excess before you get a tiny bit of moral instruction right at the end so you can actually watch <laughs> all the debauchery well that's true <laughs> and that, and that's why I love The Wolf of Wall Street too because there's no denying the the hypnotic glamour of this stuff and exactly exactly and Scorsese really does seduce you like you do you understand why you I know Jordan Belfort is like uh, you know I'm from the, almost the very first ten minutes he says I learnt how to fuck everyone hmm. like I learnt how to cheat. And that's the whole movie is him doing that. Yeah, you know, but in this case, we get Berlusconi manipulating the truth and openly explaining how he does it to his grandson, I think it is, at one point, um, which I thought was much makes him much more interesting character. Belfort I just found was an absolute cock and I wanted to have no time around <laughs> these people at all, but I really want to go to that house in Sardinia. That looks gorgeous. If I was an arrogant billionaire with no conscience, well, that's exactly what I spent my money well, on. What about the volcano? The, like, yeah, that sort of thing. Like, it's ludicrous. It's a bit sad. It's, uh, that was interesting, this sort of repeated motif. He's like when he's seducing all of these, you know, women who are there or trying to, seducing in, in scare quotes, he's always he's saying, just wait until the volcano erupts. <laughs> yeah. Just wait. And then he at the very end you see it erupt and it's just a little bit sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I think it's meant to be quite infantile. <laughs> that's the impression I get anyway. Um, yeah. but I know. Are we recommending it? I would recommend it. But I'm, but I don't think it's his best film. Though I would recommend The Great Beauty and Youth over this. I think they're yeah. both extraordinary films, actually. But yeah, I mean, Youth has Jane Fonda in it, so obviously, <laughs> obviously, that's my recommendation. <laughs> yes. Which brings us to the cultural capital film diary. The Australian Open Sports Film Festival is running until January 27 and you can catch films like The Mighty Ducks, Bandit Like Beckham, I, Tonya and Remember the Titans at free screenings in venues around the Australian Open. Google AO Sports Film Festival to find out more. At ACME you can see the Spanish film Lots of Kids, A Monkey and a Castle, a documentary about an eccentric octogenarian, Julieta Salomon, who has to downsize from the castles she's lived in for most of her life. You can catch skateboarding films, Skate Kitchen and Minding the Gap, and Alfonso Cuaron's Roma is still screening daily. Beginning on January 23, you can see Christian Markley's 24-hour film The Clock, which we'll be getting a much closer look in our next episode. Meanwhile, over at the Aster, you can catch the original Dark Crystal on January 27 before its prequel comes to Netflix later this year. 
If you want to catch that end of summer feeling for a little longer, you could see Sophia Coppola's Somewhere on January 30. Upcoming double bills include Casablanca and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof from 2pm on February 3rd and Sunset Boulevard and Sorry Wrong Number at 7pm. My family lives their own lives and I live mine. What kind of philosophy is that? You like it? You drink it. She mistook you for my husband. I didn't correct her. Oh, really? Certified Copy is Abbas Kerastami's first dramatic feature made outside of Iran in languages other than his native Farsi. Kiristami always seems to be challenging himself and his audiences, and Certified Copy certainly fits that bill. Tracing English author James Miller, played by opera singer William Schimmel, on a book tour in Tuscany as he spends a day with She, played by Juliette Binoche, Certified Copy is not easily summarised, but one could say that it is an anti-love story, a film about the crumbling of a couple's relationship. But Kiwastami brings us in media res and there's no background given to their relationship or to these people almost. So this film could be said to be an exploration of the power of cinema of its intellectual form to seduce an audience or a viewer rather than an actual relationship. No matter what it is, it's deeply engaging, not only for the questions it poses, but for Benosha's performance, for the mystery and intrigue in her face. Andy, what makes this film special for you? Um, this is really unlike any other film. People often refer to the Before trilogy when they're talking about this because it is largely people wandering around in beautiful parts of Europe having conversations with each other and you're watching a relationship either unfold or, in this case, almost like it's a mirror. <laughs> Blossoms. <laughs> yeah, it, well, yeah, it's so strange. I mean, it's really memorable because I think it changes upon viewing, which is possibly his intention, is that the first time you're kind of going, hang on, what is relationship here? And the second time you're like, oh, now I kind of get it. This is actually more about art and how you can reflect you know what you want to see in it and how it will mess with you and you kind of bring something to it so i think there's a quote that um james miller who's the author who says at the beginning um the copy leads us to a better understanding of the original and so this almost a mirror point in the middle of this where it's seen in a cafe where suddenly this relationship reverses and unfolds and this is the point where i think from the first time i'd seen it i remembered it and gone this is a really confusing film and the second time i'm like well actually two-thirds of it they're kind of playing like they're married but then I don't know. It's, it's, I've got to see it again, really, now. <laughs> I love that, yeah. you know, where they, at the cafe, where they begin to enact their relationship kind of breakdown. The first portion of that segment, you kind of think they're both still resisting that those roles. They're resisting pretending they're in a relationship. And then slowly you think, oh, yeah, okay, now they're, now, now I see what's happening. But, but what I think it really is is that that's a really brilliant kind of, you know, dual moment there because what they're really portraying is people who are in a relationship and who are testy with each other. And so that's kind of the same, doing the same thing where at, at first it's kind of confronting for the audience member maybe and you think what's going on, whereas really it's what, what we're responding to in the audience I think is the awkwardness of, of any everyday kind of interaction. Yeah, Anders, what is your impression? It's such an interesting film. I love this film because its simplicity really belies uh, something much, much more complex because, as you say, on the one level, it's just two characters hanging out for a day. But on the other level, we have this really interesting shift in their relationship. I've seen it now 
three or four times even. And I, you're exactly right, Andy. You get something different from it every time. This time I was focusing on the well, the notions of copies and dualism. And I mean, it's the it's the title of the film. And I was just struck watching the... So it starts with this shot of a sort of table at the front of an audience and James is about to give a reading um, in front of this small but attentive audience and we see they've got his books there that and they're called certified copy and the film is too so you've got a copy five seconds into the movie then um, this Italian man introduces him and he's running a bit late and the man says he can't blame the traffic his room is upstairs uh, as a joke and then James arrives and he apologises for being late and he says I can't blame the traffic I walked here so you've got two separate copies of things all in the space of two minutes <laughs> and then and then James discusses the Italian translation of his book so he's talking about a copy there too and then Benoche's character takes him to this chapel which is you know famed for this um, copy uh, work of art. So, I mean, it's just unbelievable that this is on a very simple level, three minutes into the film, it's overflowing with this idea of copies and duality. There's. Uh, I mean, is it interesting copies. as well that, that Juliette Binoche works and in and runs an antique store? You know, <laughs> yeah. and antiques can be copies as well. And, you know, if yeah. you're an antiques dealer and you don't recognize that something's a fake, then you might be. You know, yeah, and there's endless references to memories and misremembered things. There's loads of mirrors and windows and reflections in windows throughout yes, this. Yes, the and reflections. Are yeah, and it makes. But the gift I think is that he makes it look so natural and, and the way it flows. So there's these yes. constantly these married couples walking or weddings they're passing by or walking through churches. There's all these like reference, references to what they're saying visually represented in the background. So as well as you know somebody says that cliche about Italy being an open you know, living museum, an open air museum. But then really you kind of taken it almost like it's a personal museum for them. Because they're constantly like moving, going from lunch to a coffee to walking through these streets, and then you're always in the background. There's something referencing what well, they're exactly. And this uh, goes back to I think the key. Watching this, the key line that I picked up on this time around was when they're in the car, um, and Benosha's character is telling the story about her sister and her husband, and he um, says the way that she looks at her husband changes his value. And I mentioned the obvious example of this in art being um, Andy Warhol and Jasper Johns' Coca-Cola works. If you put, you know, depict Coca-Cola, you put it in a museum, it changes its value. And then there's a, that sort of really interesting moment where he mentions the cypress trees that they're driving by and he argues that they're just as beautiful and nourishing as any work of art, but because they're not framed in a museum, we sort of take them for granted. And there's this sort of wonderful shot where I think it's the only far-sighted shot in the entire film or where the focus isn't on um, these two characters, where we get the Kira Stani sort of goes back and shows, revels in the trees for like five seconds. So he's enacting this whole process with his camera. Totally. And do you know what's interesting about cypress trees is the reason that people think they're beautiful is because they all look the same. You know, and they can yeah, all yeah, be yeah, shaped yeah, yeah. to look the same yeah. and they're they're not kind of, you know, it's not like the Australian bush where you love trees because they all have branches going in every which direction. Like yeah. people love cypress trees because they're just these one boring <laughs> shapes, right? <laughs> so I, it's just like unbelievable how much it plays on these issues. But this idea of that you are or your identity changes because of perception, I think that... It may be a key to getting under some of the more elliptical parts of this film. But I just love that it works as a piece of 
you know, art criticism on one hand, with all of these, you know, lofty references to copies and art and, and value and all that stuff. But then it's also a film and this relate this sort of bizarre relationship that comes together. And so you've got that going on as well. Um, and I think that's what makes this film so good because it brings them both in and incorporates them yet yeah, seamlessly, I think. Yeah, there's this need that viewers have, particularly critics, I think, to apply imagined narratives or you know, looking for art that you can kind of personally involve in and interpret. And this kind of actively resists that and invites it at the same time. There are even scenes where, you know, uh, where Benoche seems to be gesturing to us, the viewer, like, follow me into this building. And then, you know, uh, James will walk into frame and that sort of thing. And it's magic. There's like no music. There's like one scene of somebody walking past playing an accordion. And yes. I think that's the only bit of music in the whole thing. And one of my favorite bits I only noticed the second time was that when the credits roll, we get a shot of bells ringing looking through a window but the credits don't roll across the screen they just roll across the window through the window mm -hmm. so like this is a theatre it's like wow, so theatrical Andy amazing and that shot of him looking in the mirror is a copy of his shot of Juliette Binoche's character looking yes exactly in the like too. 20 minutes earlier uh, yeah. which is a stunning I love that scene when they're in this Italian cafe and she mm. goes to make herself uh, she, she reapplies her lipstick and puts on her earrings and she goes out and he's like he ignores what she, oh, you know, I the love that. she's gone to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. How can you resist Julia Benoche? Oh. I mean, what do we think of him? Like, is he supposed to be kind of... An arsehole? Yeah. And, like, this, is he supposed to be unlikable? Like, there's something just in his attitude where... Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's so resistant to the whole thing, which is, like, intentional. Right, but I mean, she's also resistant to the two of them hanging out in a way. But she she's never kind of you know uh, angry or off putting in that way. Like, is he supposed to be uh, pu you know putting that on? It's an interesting question. Well, I found that as a sort of a bit of a yin yang energy to mm. them. Like he's so yeah. cerebral, he has to process his um, emotions through via art or via some sort of third party. Where she expresses them very, like, as she feels them, very hot. Well, very I mean, she, you know, she's an antiques dealer. She deals with people every day, whereas he's, you know, behind a desk. And he's he a, writes books. He's an academic. He, yeah, and she's he, a mother he and he's rejected and fatherhood. She, yeah, and she does pose these ideas, these, like, real-world ideas, and he always takes them and he says, oh, but what about if I put them in this conceptual framework? You know, like Such that's, an academic move. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, you know, maybe we're guilty of that. But Hashtag. Academia, and what's interesting is she acknowledges it. She says this uh, when she she gets angry with him at one point. She's because she's tried because she's got this her eleven year old son who isn't that interesting. That I story. love that she even has one. Like it, it doesn't even really have that much to do with the rest I know, of the film. But, but then there's an amazing moment where he's telling the story of watching this woman and her son in Florence. And they would never walk together and yeah. she's always walking in front of him and then, like, it sort of dawns on her and him that he's actually talking about her. There's so much you can talk about. Yeah, so. and we really can't spoil it, listeners, by the way. We can't spoil this film. It's this impossible. is what I love about It's literally two people walking around for two hours, but there's so much you can talk about. <laughs> uh, so people should go and see this. It's on 35mm at Acme. That's another reason to go and see it, people. Yeah, another if you've never seen it, uh, the Acme's Juliet Binoche <laughs> season is the perfect... Perfect example to watch it. Uh, and just FYI, listeners, well, if you love us, I don't know, a stalking opportunity, we may... <laughs> 
all go and see The Weight because it was an early cult cap fave. Yes. Yeah, we did love it. Um, yeah, we did. Particularly Anders. I think it featured in your end of year. It did. It did indeed. Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. One of my favourite films of 2016. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it was earlier than that. Featuring a Leonard Cohen um, <laughs> dance moment. Dance moment. <sighs> I don't know if we existed earlier than that, did we? I, I don't think we did. No, I think it is 2016. Anyway, it's it's yes. a beautiful film and another wonderful anchoring performance from her. Okay, and along with Certified Copy at Acme's Juliette Binoche Forever, you can also see Another Woman's Life by French actor-director Sylvie Testud, Clouds of Sils Maria. Wonderful. Which, another, another wonderful elliptical little um, film. Yes, another one that featured in your end-of-year wrap-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, well, it's a fantastic film. Um, that role was created specifically for her by Olivia SAS, as you probably know. Yeah. After she challenged him to make a film that genuinely explored the female experience, Olivia. Whoa! Yeah, <laughs> and you're not going to turn. I mean, you're not going to turn down a challenge from Juliet, surely. Um, also, uh, Bernard's groundbreaking and heartbreaking role in Kostarski's Three Colors Blue and Piero Messina's often overlooked The Weight, as previously mentioned. All these films are showing and should be seen. Yes, with you, dear listeners. Since we left the solar system, radio silence. We were scum. Trash. Refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of recycling us. Um, so we're going to wrap up this particular episode with our most anticipated film of 2019. And there are an awful lot of exciting looking films. There are lists all over the internet of people um, who've decided that these films are worthy of attention. There's lots of films we probably won't mention that, you know, we'll be getting a lot of attention elsewhere, blockbusters and Star Wars sequels and Scorsese movies with Pacino. And what Star Wars sequels are coming out this oh, year? Good Lord, I have no idea. There's another one at Christmas and time. And he's tired. Well, the, the, look, the look he just gave me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't remember. have melted. Uh, there's really so, so many frozen. more exciting movies than um, Captain Marvel, which we probably won't talk about, and another Star Wars movie. All the trailers that don't instill me with any, with much hope. We'll no. see it. I don't know. Well, we're in a post Black Panther world now. You've got to work overtime to make people interested yeah. in these things now. But I am particularly interested in knowing what you guys are singling out as your particular favourites, and as you have hinted at which film you may be mentioning. I have, and we just listened to the trailer. It is Claire Denise High Life. Co-starring the woman of the hour, Juliette Binoche. Um, uh, both of these people were responsible for Let the Sunshine In, which was my favourite film of last year. So, of course, naturally... This and is maybe one of my favourite films of the year and before. Anyway, so was. solid. Listen to some previous eps to hear us... Um, yelling at <laughs> slash with Andy Hazel it about it. Andy's second least, least favourite album last year. <laughs> but it's also out this week, I think, or around, it's out, out about now. It's screening it's in Acme's um, season. Yes, sorry, it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, High Life. Um, this has an interesting production history. Uh, originally, the author Zadie Smith was on board as a screenwriter, but due to creative differences, she has pulled out. Memorably, Denise said that while Smith and her quote, live on the same planet, they're, quote, not living the same life, that's for sure. So they weren't quite on the same page. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, it follows uh, a cast including Robert Pattinson, Mia Goth from Suspiria and assorted other films, and Andre 3000 as death row inmates who have been forced to live together on a spaceship. Juliette Binoche plays an onboard scientist who starts conducting oddball experiments. We've been promised depictions of all manner of bodily fluids, and Claire Denis is 
I think she's quite masterful at exploring bodies on screen. Um, and we've also been promised Juliet Binoche straddling a masturbation machine known as the fuck box. So I'm in. <laughs> Can't wait. So that's coming. That's playing at the Allianz Francaise French Film Festival around the country. In March. In March. From March onwards. Yes. Yeah. So you will have a chance to see this. Yeah. Very easily. So that's my number one most anticipated. I also anticipate it highly. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, shall I say mine or do you want to go next? I'm so desperate to find out what yours is, Andy, okay. but I feel like I should say mine because yours is the drum Well, roll. I actually have three. <gasps> what? Well, one of them is very, very short. I'm just it's only, There's only a very a very scant information about it, but I think we're all going to be quite We're getting interested. a new Kelly Reichardt, apparently. We are. That's one of the... Is that one that okay, she, screened, she filmed in the UK? No, this one's in Oregon. She's back in Oregon again. I can't remember oh, the name of it. Oh, wasn't she's... she going to be filming? Oh, anyway, who cares? Yeah. I mean, I care. Okay, well, I'll just drop the little one, Do it. which is uh, called uh, Memoria, which is the new one from a Peach Pong where it's a girl and what? starring yes, Tilda so Swinton. That. I didn't know it was called that. Yeah, they just so got named recently. It. So Tilda Swinton, yes. um, and it's about a, a Scottish woman travelling in Cam- Colombia who begins to notice strange sounds, then begins to think about their appearance that a Peach Pong has based on an illness he experienced himself, which was translates roughly as your brain is exploding. So, cool. so I think the sound design in this is going to be bonkers. So it sounds like she, like Tilda Swinton in the Amazon experiencing weird out of body things. I can't wait. Thanks, I'm Andy. there. Yep. One hundred percent. Great. One of my most anticipated films of this year is something that I tweeted about the other day before I um, remembered that I had to do this for this podcast episode. So take that as like that I am in fact genuinely excited for this film. Uh, B Guns, Long Day's Journey into Night. Um, Whoa. His uh, sophomore feature, I believe it would be called, after uh, Kylie Blues from a couple of years ago, a film that I saw at MIFF, which I remember as being this like terrifically kind of um, oneric journey through China. Was it dreamlike? (laughs) Yes. Um, And... I just, I really loved it kind of the way that that he used colour was just kind of incredible. But this film, I mean, I love it because, oh, you know, what a title. You can't not but have a classic if you call a film Long Day's Journey into Night. But it apparently has, I mean, it screened at a few festival, international festivals last year and then I was uh, hotly anticipating it to screen at some, somewhere in Australia, but um, apparently had been re-edited or something was happening to it. Maybe the 3D was getting like zhuzhed up or oh, something because oh, apparently yeah. this film contains a 50-ish minute long take that is in 3D. I don't know if that means that the rest of the film is not 3D and only this one is or something. But anyway, something bonkers is going on. And it I is. I cannot wait to find out. Yeah, I saw it at Cannes. What? Yeah. Oh, you've already seen I've it? I've seen it, yeah. Andy, well, apparently it's going to be different now, so you can't <sighs> get that smug look off your face. Sorry. I did mention it in our Cannes app. 
but I was very, very blasé. I probably I'd... heard about that and then just shoved it away because I didn't want to hate you. <laughs> um, it was a very singular experience. Uh, I won't. I'm not going to. I don't know if my opinion matters. At this Singular, no. Do you hate it? No, not at all. Oh my god, no. All right, so we're not going to fight about. No, this but one. I, I want to see it again. But I want to have a coffee first because it is very slow, very careful, gorgeous, very dreamlike, and that particular moment where the protagonist walks into a 3D cinema, sits down, puts on his 3D oh, glasses, so and everyone in the cinema 3D. that you're in has to put on the set 3D glasses at that point. <gasps> so it's interactive in a in that kind of cool. way. Interactive, but not in an annoying, not in a bandersnatch way. kind of way. No. Okay, great. <laughs> but, Good. Phew. But I, I don't know. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, and yes, I was expect, half expecting expecting it to be at MIF, mm, but, but apparently it was them. getting yeah resourced. Yeah. Well, I look forward to digging deeper into this. If should it get an Australian release in 2019, which hopefully it will. Um, my most anticipated film of 2019 is Jojo Rabbit the forthcoming film by New Zealand director Taika Waititi. Um, so to set the scene why I think this is quite so exciting, I'm going to wind back to 2004 when Taika Waititi was sitting in a uh, theatre of the Oscars and was mentioned for his short film, Two Cars, One Night, and where he pretended to be asleep when his name was read out. This was like <laughs> the funniest moment in recent Oscar history because he had planned with everybody else who was nominated for Best Short Film that they would all pretend to be asleep when the camera cut to them, which would have been brilliant, but in the end he was the only one that actually went through with it. Oh. But um, So anyway, he was like roundly does he now hate those other people? Oh, no, they all got along all right, I think. <laughs> um, but back in New Zealand, he was criticised heavily for, like, this ridiculous thing right. that he did when all of New Zealand was finally going to, you know, <laughs> on... <laughs> Anyway, so that's the sort of sense of humour that he kind of debuted with. Um, and then he did uh, Eagle vs. Shark, which was a quirky kind of funny comedy. Then he did Boy in 2010, which was about a 10-year-old kid who tries to um, reconnect with his father via a love for Michael Jackson, which was for a few years the biggest film in New Zealand box office history. And then a few years later he took that accolade off himself via Hunt for the Wilder People. What we do in the shadows is his movie is now a TV show. which is coming out later this year. And then last year he did Anders' third favourite film of the year, Thor Ragnarok. Was that my third favourite film of the year? Uh, yep. Clearly highly dedicated. It's a great I mean, it's, it's a cracking a film. film. But cracking the film. thing, and the reason I'm going through all this is because we can say no matter what scale he's on or story he wants to tell, he always manages to invest this fantastic sense of humour that is never smug, never condescending, never a bunch of in-jokes to people who get a particular culture or a massive nerds for some, about something. There's How not does a, he do it? It's not a joke for the he's adults magical. that goes over the head of the kids. It's everything. Everything is a family movie for him and it's never G-rated family. It's yeah, sort of boring. Yeah, it's right. never bland. It's always edgy and exciting and I don't quite know how he does it. So I think they're all really inclusive films, which I think is one of his gifts. So when it was announced that he was making an animated film about Michael Jackson's chimp Bubbles, I was kind of optimistic. <laughs> and then when it was announced that he was pushing that to the side to focus on this film Jojo Rabbit that was quite weirdly named, I was completely flummoxed. And this is the synopsis for Jojo Rabbit. A young German boy in Nazi Germany whose imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler discovers that his family is hiding a Jewish girl in their house. Their cast list is... Roman Griffin Davis is plays Jojo. Um, Scarlett Johansson plays his mother. Uh, Taika Waititi plays Hitler. Thomason McKenzie from Leave No Trace plays the, jo- the girl in hiding up in the attic. Rebel Wilson plays a character called Frightful Fraulein. Alfie Allen, who's Theon Greyjoy from Game of Thrones and Lily Allen's brother, is plays a guy called Finkel. Stephen Merchant, who's the co-creator of The Office and Extras, but also was in um, Logan, that movie last year, as Logan's friend, um, is uh, Captain Dirtz. And then after playing a massive racist in Three Billboards and George W. Bush in Vice, Sam Rockwell is playing a Nazi youth captain known as Captain Krill Eisenhoff. 
Uh, Sounds like it's going to be like really fucking awful. Well, let me continue. <laughs> <laughs> this is an adaptation of Christine Lauren's novel Caging Skies and it's from a blacklist script. And every single time Taika Waititi has tweeted or posted anything about this, he's gone out of his way to show how this is actually not a film in, in any way which is sympathetic to Hitler. And as he said, what a better way to insult Hitler than having him portrayed by a Polynesian Jew. So I think uh, his track record, that subject and the cast is a cause for really great an- um, anticipation. I'm so excited. For me being excited. No, just like <laughs> what the hell? Exactly what the hell. But also he's not going to fail. He's not, he doesn't do duds. No. It's going to somehow be inclusive and wonderful. I just It does. How though? I want to see I know. it. It's like such a high bar. Yeah, I'm keen too. Um, I'm so excited for you being. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah. But there are also so many other things. Like there's an untitled Chris Morris project starring um, oh. Anna Kendrick, which hasn't got a name, hasn't. It's been AWOL for a long time. Yeah, it's coming out later this year, but there's no proper release date yet. There's a Kelly Reichardt movie, which looks amazing. But this is the film I think we're going to collectively be the most excited about. What would you do if you were a first-time director and your debut film was a very personal account of growing up and it was picked up by the very cool distribution company A24 and went on to become their biggest hit ever and the Academy fell in love with you and Cultural Capital named that film the joint best film of 2016? I'm talking about Greta Gerwig and Lady Bird, of course. You would. Uh, oh, I see make what you're little doing. Women. You would make little women. <laughs> yes, you would. You would go and tell the story Is that before March Sisters. Yeah. I'm um, growing up in 18, yeah, 1860s Massachusetts. Oh my God, do you yes, guys want to see something? Yes. Well, for listeners, I'm going to have to describe to you what um, Elo is excitedly showing us. Is it going to be the, yes, it is. It's the Winona Ryder Little Women version of 25 years ago, also starring Claire Danes. That I borrowed from the library. Sorry, just, I don't own it, but it just, it seems quite fortuitous. It is extremely fortuitous. Wow. That this is happening right now. You guys are on the same wavelength. This is Same wavelength. Andy and I may in fact be the same person. (laughs) Listeners, (laughs) you've never seen us in the same room together, most of you. (laughs) Um, so I'm probably not alone in wondering whether Greta Gerwig can tell stories that aren't drawn from her own life, which she does so brilliantly and has done three times now, I think. Regardless of what you think, I think that is an excellent match for her. I think this is a yeah. brilliant combination of director and subject. And the cast includes Timothy Chalamet as Laurie, yeah. um, Sasha Ronan, Florence Pugh, who we all liked in Lady Macbeth, like the upcoming star, Emma Watson, and Eliza Scanlon, who's from this show called Sharp Objects that apparently is very good, I've not seen. Laura Dern as Mami March and Meryl Streep as Aunt March with Chris Cooper and Bob Odenkirk in smaller roles. Wow. I'm there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> too much going on in my brain. I'm yeah, just, it's a lot to take in. Um, I'm just wondering how many different ways I can say I love Laura Dern. We do have a long time to wait. It's due out on Christmas Day in America. No Australian release date, but I imagine it'll be around at the same time. So anyway, this is a reason to be really excited for the rest of 2019, I think, because you're knowing that this is in the offing. Yay, cinema. Yay, cinema. <laughs> 2019 movies. I had to ask you about Little Women reteaming with Greta Gerwig. I mean, Lady Bird, I mean, oh, such a special, special film. And mm-hmm. I love that you're, how was it being back together with her and with Timothy yeah. Chalamet, who's playing Laurie? It's been amazing. And it's just been wonderful to watch her take on, like, this huge film like I don't think any of us realized until we were in it how big it was there's a lot of film there and she's just been wonderful and again just like Lady Bird she knows exactly what she's going to do with it you know you just know that it's in really safe hands like I, it'll be brilliant it'll be and I, I never say that about a film I'm in but it'll be it's special I know it's really special that's everything, I think, Yeah. this particular app. Yeah, Thanks pretty for much. Listening. Please yeah. don't get hesitate to get in touch and talk 
So tell us copy. Yeah, tell us what we missed from the 2019 excited anticipated movies yes, list. Please. Tweet at us on the Cult Cap Pod, or find us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast or on Instagram. You could also subscribe to our podcast, give us a rating on iTunes. That would be amazing as long as it's five stars. I mean, four will be okay as well, yeah. but no less. Uh, <laughs> I've got nothing. You guys covered it. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Andersfurs. I'm at Eloise Low Ross. <laughs> and I'm at Andy Ricky. We think you're great. We think you're great. Bye. Bye. Bye.